Hi, everybody. My name is Don from an alcoholic. By God's grace, sponsorship and the 12 steps, I've been sober since February the 21st, 1980. Grateful for my sobriety. I'm grateful to be here at this rough river roundup with you tonight. I want to thank uh, Marlene for inviting us and I guess the committee. She may be a committee of one when it comes to speakers, but I, I want to thank her for inviting Susan and I to come share this weekend. It's a pretty place. What a pretty place this is. Um, we live in Marco Island, Florida. My home group is in Naples, Florida. It's the three legacies group. We meet on Monday nights at 730. Uh, we've met so many nice people here this weekend. This is our favorite kind of a conference. We started out with conferences like this in a little canyon south of Amarillo, Texas. That's where we met the speaker last night long time ago. And I want to thank Gary for his talk last night. It, it moved me a great deal. It's, I enjoyed your talk this morning, Gary. Thank you so much. What a thrill it's got to be after 50 years in this program to get to share a program with your daughter. And it just thrills me. And I look forward to hearing Susan in the morning. She is one of my favorite Al-Anon speakers. I God, it's hard to be transparent. Isn't it? I, <laughs> I just want to ask you to do one thing when she's talking in the morning. Think how boring her story would be were it not for me. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> you know, I've been back in the big bed long enough that I, 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 I do appreciate her talk. I guess if I was to tell you, or try to tell you in a, in a in a few short words what my life was like until I was 41 years old and found my way to this fellowship. I'd say something was missing. Something was always missing in me. And I, as I look back over that 41 years, it becomes kind of clear to me that what I was really about was partaking in a in a search. It, I didn't know what for, so it was always a, a frantic and a futile search to find that missing something in the middle of me. There were times when I was a kid that, like we all do, we have some first-time experiences, and I thought that probably it wouldn't make me whole. I, I God, I loved airplanes. I built model airplanes since I was big enough to stick two pieces of balsa wood together with some glue, and wouldn't uh, be. When I was a sophomore in high school, I talked my daddy to let me take flying lessons. And that uh, that year, I, I got to fly an airplane by myself for the first time. It was something that I flew airplanes till I was 65 years old. And I just love flying airplanes. And for a while, I thought that that had to be everything there was for me in this world. But that kind of didn't last all that long, that, that feeling of wholeness. And then... Uh, Somewhere between my sophomore and junior year, one of the junior girls asked me to go to the junior-senior prom. We lived in this little town. I grew up in this little town in southwestern Kansas by the name of Ulysses, Kansas, population about 3,500. And this older girl asked me out. I was quite thrilled, and I'll tell you that about 2.30 the next morning after that prom, I was quite sure I had found what was missing in my life. And that thrill lasted for a while, but it, it didn't seem to quite 
fill in the gap. A little later, uh, I guess it was the next summer, I remember my dad had a 54 Ford Coupe. It wasn't too old. And he and my mom uh, decided to go to Colorado fishing. We only lived 25 miles from the Colorado state line. We were in western Kansas. And uh, I, I talked my dad into loaning me that car so I could pick up three of my buddies to go to the drive-in theater. And he foolishly agreed to that. And I picked up my three friends, and we got out there and got the speaker hung on the door, and we're waiting for the movie to start, and one of them pulled a, a pint of tequila out of his back pocket. It might have been a half a pint. I don't know. And he said, look what I got. Now, this house that I grew up in, Knew all the heartache and the heartbreak, the broken promises, the shattered dreams, the fussing and the fighting and the crying that comes from a family that's afflicted with the illness of alcoholism because of my dad's drinking. And, and I had promised myself as a young lad that I would never drink like that or hurt the people that love me the way people got hurt in my house. Not so much physically, but but mentally and and and, uh, and through abusive language. And yet, my friend in the back seat took a drink, handed it to the guy on my right, and he took a drink out of that bottle of tequila. And uh, without a thought of any of that, I took it up and took the biggest swallow I could, and I thought I'd die. I had, I never had anything burn like that going down, and I thought I spewed up a good bit of it, and they were laughing at me. And I handed it back to the kid behind me and, and pretty quick, not very long, like Gary said last night, things changed. I, uh, I started to feel like I, they looked. Uh, I, I started to, uh, my, my, my reality began to change. Um, and when that bottle came back to me, I only had one thought. I hope there's some of that left when it gets back here. And, and I think that was really about the extent of my career as a social drinker. How long it took for that bottle to make it around, plus, plus kids. I, that started a pattern in my drinking that I was 17, I believe. That started a 24 year pattern in my life. I drink until I ran out or blacked out, sometimes passed out. And when I'd come to, I'd be in trouble because when I came to the next morning, the back end of my dad's car, one fender was all smashed in. I don't know how it got that way. I don't remember anything about it. Don't remember leaving that movie, getting home, anything. Came to my T-shirt was a mess. That stuff's uglier coming up than it is going down. And he came home and I started this thing and I was to do for the next 24, 24 years of my life. I'd, I'd lie my way out of it. There were, there were a lot of things that I tried in that 24 years. It's, it's like those things that I would find reach out to grab a hold of to try to fill in this, whatever, this hole in my gut. They wouldn't quite fit. But that booze always made them fit good enough for a little while that I could feel halfway complete, like a whole person. And I try a lot of stuff to use along with booze to try to fill up that hole. A lot of silly, crazy things I would do. Uh, I've been about this ball headed since I was 24 years old. And uh, one morning in the early 70s, I think it was, I was shaving. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, my God, that's what's missing in my life. 
I don't have any hair. So I made some inquiries and I found there was a doctor in Wichita that was supposed to be able to do something to you. You could have a head of hair. And I went down to see him and he explained to me that for $5,000, he could cut 50 plugs of hair out of the back of my neck. And then he could cut, and he'd go cut holes in my head in rows. And he'd transplant these plugs of hair into those holes in the top of my head. And if we got lucky, grow me 10 cornrows of hair. And I, he said, what do you think? And I said, not much. <laughs> and he wanted five grand for this. And this was in the 70s. That's a lot of money then. And he said, well, you want to do it? And I said, no, sir. And he said, how come? And I said, well, you're as ball-headed as I am. If it works so darn good, why don't you do it for yourself? <laughs> and he said, doesn't bother me to be ball-headed. And I said, oh, doesn't bother me. $5,000 worth either. Thank you. And I, I paid my $50 fee in the left. And I, I'd parked across the street. This was in Wichita. I'd got my little airplane flown 250 miles to talk to him. And uh, I parked across the street. And I, I realized I'd parked in front of the liquor store. So I went in and, and bought a fifth of Jesterine, Jesterine and Brooks Magic Elixir and uh, started to get in my car. And I looked up in the easier, softer way, jumped right up and grabbed me. I, there was a kind of a barber shop there. It, it had a five or six or seven styrofoam models of men's heads in the window. And on each one of those men's heads was a full head of hair. And I went in there and talked to this guy, and about an hour later and $300 later, I walked out with a full head of hair with a pompadour that went from here to here, and I looked just like a hero of mine, Glenn Campbell. <laughs> you know, they had a challenge. You had to get the, the the rug to stick on the shiny ball head. And so they sold me a roll of double-sided adhesive tape, and I cut this tape into little one-inch strips, Peel the backing off, stick it around the inside perimeter of that wig, and then I went stick, sticky side down, and peel the tape off the top of it, sticky side up, and hit it on there, and put some hairspray on it, and I was ready to do the boogaloo. But this is a long time ago. They've surely come up with something better in 40 years. <laughs> and I think it probably worked pretty good for non-alcoholic drinkers. Because I don't know about you guys, but when I drink scotch whiskey in a little bit, it starts to come out the top of my head in the form of perspiration. It does a lot of magic in here and in here, but eventually it comes out up here. And adhesive tape abhors perspiration. So I, I took my fifth and my new hair and I went down to a joint I knew in South Seneca Street in Wichita. And, uh, there was a band back in the corner, a cowboy band and a little dance floor and, and they were playing and I started drinking my scotch and of course I became the world's best dancer pretty quick and a conversationalist at no equal. And I asked someone to dance and I started doing the boogaloo and my head started sweating and the tape turned loose and the damn thing turned around on my head sideways. <laughs> And uh, that didn't impress anyone. <laughs> and that didn't fill this hole very good either, I'll tell you that. I wore that silly thing for a couple of years, I guess. I'll... I was in the construction business. Mostly we did asphalt paving, and I'd 
I'd taken a job to rebuild an airport in Alamosa, Colorado, and I came home one night, and I was staying in a hotel. I came back to the room, and I was loaded. And, and every once in a while, it wouldn't all come loose. Just one side would come loose. And then it could flop over, and you'd have that cool half-scalp look, you know. <laughs> and that's what happened that night, I guess. I, I, all I knew, I made it to the room in time to get down on my knees in front of the throne of American Standard and that stuff started coming up, and that last tape gave way, and the rug fell right in there. With it. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't fish it out. <laughs> I might have. Some people thought I was a town drunk, but I wasn't the village idiot. I did not fish it out of there. I just hit the silver handle, and I, the guy's on the job the next morning. He said, "Don, what happened to your hair?" And I said, "I just decided to become the real me." You know. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I must have been for the next six or seven years. I, I just, I always came back to the only thing that really ever, ever feel me, made me feel like I was not an alien in an inhospitable world really was booze. It, it, it could alter my perception of reality to the point that I, I felt like I'd get along. People changed. People became what I wanted them to be. They felt like it made me look like I looked like the way they looked and act the way they acted. And I don't know about you, and I don't believe that alcoholism is, is a moral affliction. But in my life and in the lives of most of the men that I sponsor today and have sponsored over the years, alcoholism leads us to that perfectly described place in our book, Pitbull an incomprehensible demoralization and that's where it took me. I, I I I developed this kind of credo for living that any means justifies the end. We Susan and I got married while we were still in college and I went to the service and we came back to this little town in Kansas. I went to work for my dad in this little construction business. We had two kids and uh but yet it wasn't enough. It wasn't ever enough. And, and I developed this credo of living that says that any means justifies the end and whatever it takes to, uh, to make me happy and satisfied with life, it go about getting it no matter what the consequences of how I went about. So I became a liar and a cheat and a thief in every area of my life. I did. I, uh, I, I became a, if I perceived, I, I, whatever I perceived I needed to make me happy, I went about getting it. If I perceived I needed more money, and I always thought I needed more money, and and I couldn't make enough doing my business in the legal way, I'd find other ways to do it and break some laws if necessary, and I did, in order to uh, to try to bring in what I thought would make me happy in the way of money, and it was that way in every area of my life. Yeah. I brought the terrible affliction of infidelity into our marriage. I I became a a part-time husband to Susan, and I became an absentee father to those two kids. Uh, and 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 really, that's where I was uh, on the morning of, of February the twentieth of nineteen eighty. I had started a little business in Denver to uh, really to run away and and live this Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde kind of life that I was living. And uh, I was in my office. 
packing my little briefcase because I was getting ready to go to Denver. And I like what I do when I go to Denver is I live a life that I'm ashamed of. And I come home filled with guilt and remorse. Take it out on Susan and the kids. Rage. Verbal abuse. Exactly the home that I grew up in that I said I would never do. And that's where I was that morning. I was in my office getting ready to walk out the door and the phone rang. Um, about the time I got sober, and maybe it was a little bit before, there was a popular speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous. His name was Norm Alfie, and he died. And he always talked about seconds and inches. I never did get to hear him. I just heard his tapes. And he talked about those little infinitesimal times in space and distance that, that, that just indelibly change our lives. And that's what happened that morning because there weren't any cell phones. It, the phone rang just as I was walking out the door and someone said, it's Susan. She wants to talk to you. If I, if that phone had rang a minute later, I don't think I'd be here standing here tonight in front of you. But it rang and it was Susan and she said, I want to go to Denver and Joyce and I want to go to Denver with you. Can we meet you at the airport? And I was on my way to get my little airplane to fly to Denver to this business that was an excuse for my for my immoral lifestyle. And uh, I I said, yeah, I guess so. Because, see, the last two people in the world I wanted to go to Denver were Susan, for obvious reasons, the way I lived life. And then this lady named Joyce, who, I mean, I, there was a time when I thought Joyce was a lot of fun. She and her husband would come over to our house, and Joyce and I'd go out in the kitchen and have a couple of shooters and fix four mixed drinks and take them out and Susan and her, Joyce's husband, John, would watch the ice cubes melt in their glasses and Joyce and I'd chug them down and we'd go back in the kitchen and mix a couple more drinks and she'd been fun to be around until uh, New Year's Eve of 1979 in a blackout. She tried to commit suicide. She was unsuccessful and they took her to the hospital and got her stomach pumped and, and some people from this goofy organization called Alcoholics Anonymous came up to talk to her and she started going to AA. So I, I didn't want her to go to Denver with me, but we got out there and, and got in the car I kept at the airport and I checked into a holiday inn. I went to the bar and they did whatever they went to Denver to do, I guess, because that's the last thing I remember about February the 20th. I came to you on February the 21st in that hotel room. I recognized the hotel room because I slept there about three or four nights a week. And then I realized Susan was there and then I remembered that Joyce had come along and I knew I was in deep trouble. And about that time, I guess uh, Susan had previously ordered some coffee and the coffee came and I was sitting there with clothes I'd had on the night before. My hands were shaking so bad I was trying to drink this coffee and it was pouring down my dirty shirt. And she must have called Joyce and had her come to drink coffee with us because there was a knock on the door and Susan opened the door and Joyce came leaping and bounding into the room with her bright, clear little AA eyes and said, good morning, Donald, how are you? And... uh I guess if I ever had a moment of truth, that was the moment. And, and I sometimes think I simply ran out of lies. But I looked at her and I said, Joyce, I'm not worth a damn. And she looked at me and she said, I know how you feel. There was another speaker I used to like a lot. And we were, somebody was talking about him a little bit earlier. His name was Wino Joe Lee from Tyler, Texas. And Wino Joe used to say the five little magic words in AA. I know how you feel. And that's what she said. And you got to keep in mind, she's about seven weeks sober. 
But she's, I, and I don't know why I did this. I said, Joyce, tell me something about this thing you're doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she started talking to me. And uh, I guess God not only sent me an angel, he sent her on a cloud because it started snowing big time right then. We couldn't get home. And the rest of that day and evening, Joyce told me about what she was doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. She'd been through the, the first seven steps. She had a sponsor. She told me how it was, what she was doing, how she was not drinking. Susan said she never got so tired of hearing people talk about drinking and not drinking in her life. And I guess mostly because I was trying to get back in Susan's good graces somewhere along that day. I told Joyce I'd go to a meeting with her. The next morning, the sun came out. Susan was kind of speaking to me again. Joyce was very cheerful. We got in the plane, flew home. I went to work, came home from work, was helping in the kitchen because I wanted to get back in the big bed again. And the doorbell rang and I opened the door and it was a cold February night in the high plains of western Kansas, probably about 20 degrees. And it was Joyce standing there and I said, Joyce, what are you doing? You come in, you'll freeze out there. And she said, no, come on, let's go. And I said, go where? She said, you promised you would go with me to an AA meeting. And I said, well, God's sakes, I didn't mean now. She, she was a big gal. She just reached up and grabbed me. I didn't have a tie on, but she grabbed my shirt just like this and drug me through the door cold. She said, get your miserable tail in the car. We're going to AA. And we did. And, and the real paradox of that story is I've been going back ever since. She, uh, there was this little group. This little town had this one AA group, about 20 members, I suppose, had five meetings a week. And uh, I'm incredibly fortunate because this was a group that insisted that the answer to the illness of alcoholism was in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, you came in there and they said, you need to get a sponsor. And they just ragged your butt until you got a sponsor. And I asked this guy to be my sponsor. And uh, Joyce took me to the meetings for for the first week. And then I knew this guy. And he had been on a business trip. And he came back. And I asked him to be my sponsor. And he started picking me up. And he'd take me to those five meetings. And then there was little farm towns nearby. And they all had meetings. But mostly people from this group had helped get started. And we'd go to those other towns. So I was going to a meeting every night of the week. But I wasn't. we weren't just riding in the car. He, he made me buy the blue book and, uh, he started giving me the assignments and I had a reading assignment every day and we'd talk about it and he took me right through the steps and I'm so grateful for that. I know that we stay sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and don't all do this thing the same way, but I don't think I could have stayed sober if he hadn't took me right into the steps and, 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 and we we went right on through them. And we got to step four. I told him I was too busy. Construction season was starting. And he said, then you'll have to get a new sponsor. Because he said, you're not going to stay sober if you don't do these steps. So he came into my office the next morning and threw this pad of yellow paper down. And he said, write till you run out of paper you run out, and two pencils. And he said, write till you run out of paper pencil in. And I wrote this inventory. I didn't write it in the columns. In the second edition of the big book, there was a story called Joe's Woes. And that's what I wrote. Don's Woes. And I wrote about my miserable life. And uh, showed up at his house and, and uh, 
we got down on our knees and, and we did the third step prayer and I handed him the inventory and he handed it back. He said, you wrote it and you read it and uh, I'll listen and God is here. And I got about halfway through that. That's a sad story. And he stopped me and there were tears running down his face. And I thought I have so offended him. He's going to ask me to leave. And I said, what's the matter, Louie? And he said, Don, do you realize you're telling me the story of my life? And uh, I realized for the first time that there might be hope for me to get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I read all that stuff, and then he took a piece of paper and drew three lines down it. And he said, let's see if we can sort this out a little bit. And it was been a, lot, it was a long evening, and we came up with my resentment list. and where I was wrong and what fear, part fear played in it. And I'd already written my, a lot about my sex inventory. And after we did this, he said, Don, I got, I guess, good news and bad news for you. He said, the good news is you can get sober and stay sober in AA. But he said, the bad news, I suppose, is that I really don't think you can if you keep living your life the way you're living. His sponsor was a ex-professional rodeo cowboy named Jerry. And Jerry used to say, if you're a drunken horse thief and you decide you need to, you think you should stop drinking, you're probably going to also have to quit stealing horses. And uh, Louis said, they got a clean sheet of paper. And I said, I, I, we'd done, we'd got her and we'd read the paragraph in the big book about step six and, and then the one about step seven. And the prayer, and we got on our knees and said the seven-step prayer. And then he said, take out the clean sheet of paper. He had told me not to read ahead, but of course I did. And I said, I can't do this deal, Louis. I can't. There's no way I can straighten up the mess I just read to you. And he said, yes, you can. He said, I did. And uh, you can do it too. But he said, you've got to get started. And he said, we're just going to make the list, Don. We make the list tonight, and we'll deal with the next part of step eight later. So I made the list and he sent me home and he told me to do what it says in the book, take the book down from the shelf and see if I've been thorough thus far. If I was trying to make mortar without sand. And I didn't do any of that. I uh, took a clean sheet of paper and wrote a letter of resignation to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I did. Because I'd kind of lied to my sponsor. I, I, I said I didn't think I could do it, but I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. That's the truth. I didn't know if I was ready to quit stealing those horses. Susan may talk about her relationship with Louis. He was important in both of our lives. But uh, she started going to Al-Anon. And uh, she'd come to some open A meetings with me, and then they 12-stepped they her into Al-Anon. The Al-Anon girls did. And they were having this little conference down at Paladura Canyon. I don't know whether that was the time we met Gary or whether it was the next year. We talked about it a little bit. But at any rate, Louis said, I want you and Susan to go. You need to go. And I hadn't given him my letter of resignation. This was the week after I wrote it. And so they came by and got us. Somebody had a Winnebago, and we all got in a Winnebago, and we went down to the Paladura, to the Cedar Glen conference. And that night... Uh, after the speaker was over, this guy from the group named Bernie came up to me and he said, Don, I got to talk to you. And I said, what for? And he said, I've got to, uh, I've got to, uh, 
make amends to you for something. And he said, I don't think you know anything about it. And so I said, what are you talking about, Bernie? And he had stolen something from one of our, my trucks one time, a part he needed to keep his farm truck going. And he said, I got to make that right. And I said, well, Bernie, that's no big deal. I don't want you, your money. And he said, I don't think you understand. He said, I thought you might have figured it out by now. If, if I don't clean house, I'm afraid I'm going to drink. And he said, I need to do this, Don, to stay sober. So I took his money and the light kind of went on. So I went over to this old army barracks where Louis was sleeping and he wasn't asleep. He was in there and I, I took out my letter of resignation. I said, well, I was going to give this to you. And he looked at it and laughed. I said, you're not going to believe what just happened. Bernie came up to me and made amends for something I didn't even know he had done to harm me. And Louis wasn't too surprised. He was also Bernie's sponsor. He said, what do you want to do? He said, it's time to fish your cut bait, Don. So I said, well, let's do it. And so we got the list out and he had me start at home. He said he wanted me to start being a full-time husband and and, 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 a, and a father that was there for those two kids. And he gave me a list of things to do. One of them was to help in the kitchen. I said, I hate Louie helping. I hate to help in the kitchen. I work hard all day. I don't want to come home and help in the kitchen. He said, Don, it might surprise you to learn that good sex oftentimes begins in the kitchen. And I said, I wrote you what it's like in that department in our house. I said, I'm going to tell you something, Louie. If there isn't a snowball's chance in hell that Susan Pope Joy's ever going to go along with that idea. And he explained to me that wasn't exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> And I started helping in the kitchen and these other things that he had us do. I've been faithful to this woman since that day I read that that first one. And I was doing some illegal things in business, and I have not done any of those things since that night I read him that fist. But it took a long time in our house for our marriage to heal. And I would say to Louie, Louis, when is she going to learn to trust me? When is she going to begin to trust me? And he'd say, I don't know. He said, I know it'll be sometime after you convinced her you're trustworthy and behaved in a trustworthy fashion to her. I think so much of what you've ever asked me to do in these 34 and a half years is just, for God's sakes, grow up and become responsible for my own behavior. And, and I remember him saying this. He said, Don, she's in Al-Anon and she's working 12 steps and you're in AA and you're working 12 steps. And it's like you're standing on a railroad track and she's standing on the one beside you and you can reach over and hold each other's hands and you're so many feet apart. Now he said, now look up and what do you see? I don't know. And he said, don't you see the tracks come together in the end? And of course I did. I'm not sober because Susan is a is a committed member of Al-Anon. I, I, the book says it for me that if I want to, uh, had me read it, it says burn into the consciousness of your man. The idea that he can stay sober. Wife or no wife, job or no job. I'm not sober because of Susan and I'm not sober because she's a committed member of Al-Anon, but my life, my sober life has been so enhanced because she is. Uh, the relationship she and I have today, and we got there because 
her working her program and, and dealing with her sponsor, she came to be able to forgive me and accepted my amends. And we don't have any ghosts in our bedroom anymore. And I'll be eternally, great, eternally grateful for that. Two kids. Uh, our son, Steve, we, we knew from the time he was in junior high, he had a problem with drugs mostly, doing some drinking. And we tried to get him help. Uh, he eventually went to college. Uh, ended up going to the University of Colorado at Boulder. Got a degree in psychology, worked as a while at a, in a care home and didn't like that. And he said, I want to become a medical doctor. Um, I made amends to those kids right after, uh, early on. And, uh, I made a lot of other family amends. I had to make amends to my mother who was still alive. And I had to make amends to my dad who, who had died eight years before, uh, 12 years before I got sober because I, I, I knew how to use his guilt and remorse to get what I wanted. I just turned that right back around and stuck it back into him. And I literally made me write, write a graveside letter for me as I had to go out and read it to him. And I had been so resentful of my dad and I got up from there free of resentment and I've been free ever since. And the same way with mom, I had to, he made me go over and start doing things for her. And I, Said, we don't hardly speak. And he said, just go over and ask her what you can do. You know, it just was always an action thing. He just pushed me to take actions contrary to what my mind wanted to do. And my life began to change. And little by little and bit by bit, my relationships began to rise like phoenix out of the ashes. And with Linda, our daughter, they did too. With Steve, it never really, he, he never really accepted my amends. But he, you know, he, he got his degree and then he went, he went out to the University of Miami and he took a bunch of, he took all his prerequisites from men's med school and he met this nice gal and they got married. He did ask me to be best man in his wedding. And then he got accepted into med school at the University of Colorado. And just before he graduated, uh, we had a house in Colorado. We had a New Year's Eve party for our A&L and our friends there. And he and Kate came down and Said, I got something to tell you. He said, I'm six months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, we were ready to turn handsprings in the snow. We were so elated. And yet, uh, he graduated from med school in June. And on the 29th of August of 1993, just that from June to August, uh, he, he was in AA. He had a sponsor. I thought things were going good. He was in the impaired physicians program at Duke University doing his residency. But he died on the 29th of August as a result of an accidental overdose. We we grieved differently. Susan tried to fix everything in our family, and I I grieved in rage. I grieved in rage for a long time. The best forgiveness story I ever heard in AA was a guy named Ed Newton. He was a giant of a man, physically and spiritually. One time we were doing a thing kind of like this together and he helped me so much. He helped me surrender Steve's death to God. But I still, it was so hard for me. I'd look at young men and think, why can they do it? And why can I do it for that matter? And, and what, why couldn't Steve do it? And like Ed said, I'm, I'm sticking my nose in God's business when I do that. And I'm never going to get the right answer. But a few years later, we got asked to speak at the doctors in AA convention and 
Minneapolis just because I happened to sponsor the doctor that was a program chair. And uh, I gave my talk on Saturday night and a lot of doctors and nurses and dentists and lab techs and those kind of people came through and thanked me for the talk. And there were three people over at the end of the stage, a woman and two men. They were in their 40s. And so when everybody else left, they came over and the woman was kind of the spokesman for them. And she said, Don, uh, we were in, we were in uh, Steve's residency group and we were in the uh, impaired positions program. We went to this thing called Caduceus class together. And she said, we would get out of Caduceus class and the four of us would go to have a cup of coffee and we would laugh and say, we're too smart to ever get in trouble with drugs. But she said, we're here to tell you tonight that we think we're alive because Steve died. And uh, just further evidence of my life to leave God's business to God. And I'll try to take care of what he gives me to do here. And not try to ask him why all the time. Uh, the other thing in my, in my uh, inventory that I, 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 did a really pretty thorough job going through by a men's list, except for this thing involving my business. Um, I'd been involved for some years in a thing called bid rigging. And to make a long story short, it just means that it takes all the surprise out of what's supposed to be a, a closed bid opening, and you know who's going to win before it starts. And uh, it was the easier, softer way. I didn't invent it, but I had not resisted it at all. Uh, Louis would say, what are you going to do to clean this up? And I tried to take refuge in the language of the ninth step when it says, except when to do so would injure them or others. I said, obviously, Louis, you can't rig a bid by yourself. And he would get very, he would almost get violently angry with me about that. And he'd say, what does it say in the big book? And I said, I, I don't know, Louis, something about praying for the willingness until it comes. And he said, then I think you need to start praying for God to help show you a way to clean this up. So I, I was praying then. I'd been sober almost a year. And uh, so I'd say in the morning, thank you, God, for the sober day yesterday. Please help me stay sober today. Uh, treat Susan like a loving husband treats his wife. And by the way, if it's not too much trouble, it'd be nice if you could show me a kind of way to kind of clean up this bid reading thing. Amen. And you need to be real careful what you pray for because you're probably going to get it. And a few months after that, I think God or perhaps Uncle Sam on his own just decided I was a little slow with that part of my night step. And they sent a team of investigators to Kansas. And I subsequently was indicted for two counts of well, one count of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act and one count of uh, mail fraud because a check came in the mail and I opened the mail to get the check. So that was another count. And, and of course, that was guilty of just what they said. And, and I got a lawyer and with the help of my lawyer and my sponsor, I, I told them I would plead guilty and uh, they'd have to draw their own conclusions about anybody else. They had someone that had, they had given full immunity to who was willing to testify against me. Of course, it would have been futile. Besides that, it had been a big lie. And like Louis said, I had to clean it up if I wanted to stay sober. And man, I, by this time, I wanted what you had. I really wanted to watch ahead. So, uh, so I pled guilty and in those days, maybe they still do. The judge does a pre-sentence investigation in federal court. So he sent us back to Ulysses to, uh, 
to uh, wait a while while he, he did his investigation and my sponsor and his sponsor and a lot of people and they wrote his letter said they knew I'd quit Reagan bids uh, almost a year before the investigation started in Kansas. But Susan, what Susan and I did, we started watching, wasn't too smart. We started watching late movies on TV about life and hard time prisons. And we developed a couple of phobias. <laughs> Susan became convinced they were going to kill me. And I became convinced they were going to do something else to me. And I shared that with my sponsor and he had me write inventory and I did, I, you know, I shared inventory with him and it didn't help. I had an AA buddy. I think it's good when we're new to have an AA buddy. In the first place, if you don't have an AA buddy and you're new and you have a sponsor, how do you know if what's kind of nagging at you is bad enough or important enough to talk to your sponsor about if you don't bounce it off your AA buddy first, you know, because sponsors are busy people and we don't want to bother them with trivial things. So I think it's important to have an AA buddy. And I went over to my buddy's house and I've been crying and I have a mess. He was... Uh, He'd been a dope dealer. He was going back to college. He was a year and a half sober longer than me. And I banged on his door and he opened the door and I'm standing there and he said, you're a mess. Come in. What the hell's the matter with you? And I said, Kenneth, I'm going to go to prison. And he said, I think you're only going to have to do maybe six months. He said, they're going to let you out. It's no big deal. It didn't, my crime did not impress him particularly, you know. <laughs> I said, you don't understand. And he said, what don't I understand? And I said, you don't understand what they're going to do to you. And he looked at me and he said, what do you think they're going to do to you? And I said, oh, God, Kenneth, they're going to rape me. And he didn't, he wasn't polite like you just were. He roared with laughter right into my face. He fell off his chair. He was laughing so hard. And I'm stomping up and down in the middle of the room. And I said, I just spilled my guts to you. And you're laughing at me. And he said, oh, my God. And he wiped the tears of laughter out of his eyes and he looked at me and he said, Don Popejoy, your ego knows no bounds. <laughs> and it went right by me. I didn't get it. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, for God's sakes, look at yourself. He said, you're middle-aged, pot-bellied, and ball-headed. He said, baby, they, you ain't got what they want. <laughs> so I was sentenced to... Uh, to six months in the federal penitentiary in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, our taper was good enough last night to use his cell phone and call Bo Templin, who's taping this week in Montgomery, Alabama. I, I told him, I said, uh, I kind of knew my way a little bit around that town, but mostly I just knew my way around Maxwell Prison at, on the Air Force Base there. Talked to Bo a little bit. But uh, after, I don't think they can do that. I know they can't. The judge can't do this anymore. He had read all the things that my A family had written him about me and where I was at in my recovery program. And he gave me a court order parole after I was there two months. So I wasn't there hardly long enough to keep my bed warm. And, uh, it let me go back home. I had to do parole. And when I wrote all this in that first inventory, Louie made me calculate how much money I thought I had illegally obtained in the process of this bid rigging over the years. And it was a ridiculously big number. But I told him. 
And so what the judge said when he let me out, he said, here's the deal. And here's the deal I learned in AA about financial amends. They really expect the money back. They really do. They don't really care much about the I'm sorry thing. And Lidolf told me, he said, for you, amends don't have anything to do was saying, I'm sorry. He said, Don Pope Joe, you're the world's expert at saying, I'm sorry. He said, for you, amends have to do with going to the person you've harmed and saying, what can I do to right the wrong? And so the judge said, you have to pay this money back in five years or you'll have to finish this term. And we were bankrupt. We really were. We did have taken all the money to uh, to deal with this thing. But they finally let us start bidding jobs again. And I went to the employees of the company and I said, I can't pay you. What's your work? There weren't that many of us. There were maybe 25 or 30 of us. But I said, if you'll, if you'll stick with me, I think we can make use of some principles. Some good people have been trying to teach me and make this business turn around. And they said, okay. Almost all of them said, okay. And uh, I don't know, you know, just like staying sober, it's a one day at a time thing. But uh, we suit up and show up in AA, and I learned if we suit up and show up in our job and do it according to the way the rules say you got to do it, we were pretty good at what we did. And at the end of three and a half years, I had that money paid back. And then at the end of about six or seven years, I, I set up an employee stock ownership program and I gave the employees and there were about 70 or 80 of us within a third of that company. And then in 1996, uh, we sold that business to some good folks in Wichita, Kansas. That's how we moved to Wichita. And there were about 110 of us in that company then and we all walked away with a measure of financial security. And I went to work for that other company. They treated me well. Uh, the last couple of years I was there, the state of Kansas, the people that I went to jail for cheating, stealing from, the highway department people came to my boss and said, we'd like to figure out a way to build better roads in Kansas out of asphalt so they don't keep falling apart. And we'd like to start a committee of, of industry and business, and we'd like for Don to chair the committee. And I did that for the last two years. And in 1996, I stood on a little diocese in Lawrence, Kansas at a, at, a, at a joint meeting and I handed out some awards that I had set up for quality and, and then the secretary of the transportation and the chief highway engineers called me back up to the stage and they said that we want to give you this plaque and this commendation and, and these people that uh, in 1980 I had 81 I had gone to prison for breaking the law and cheating them and stealing from them, gave me a plaque of commendation for my service to transportation in the state of Kansas. And I wanted to say, don't give it to me. Give it to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I wanted to say. But you had taught me some things about anonymity, and I just said thank you from the bottom of my heart. And we moved to Florida where we live today. How are we doing for time? I didn't pay any attention. Okay. I want to tell you a little bit of what our life's like today. If that day that Joyce 12-stepped me, she'd said, here's a here's a ticket to the AA train. And you can write this ticket for as long a ride as you want. 
I would have written myself a short ride on the railroad. I would have said, let me ride your train long enough that I can get the heat off with Susan, that I can clean up a little bit of a mess in my business, that I can at least have some kind of a working relationship with my kids, and then I'll get off your train. That part of the book when it talks about getting rocketed into a new dimension, that's what happened to me because of this fellowship and the program and sponsorship. We have a life that I, and I'm not talking about from the materialistic side of things. Susan and I have a life together that I could have never imagined. My sobriety is the great miracle in my life, but there's another one that's like unto it. And that's the relationship I have with her and with our remaining child, Linda, and her family. We, uh, we're going to have nine, our, all of our extended family is going to come to our house for Christmas. Our daughter-in-law, Kate, Stephen's wife, who died, she never did remarry. She's had some long-term relationships, usually with married men that didn't turn out very good. <laughs> But one of them got a divorce, and they're living together now. They're going to come. And, of course, Linda, our daughter, and her husband, and their two grandkids, they named their first grandson for our son, Stephen, that died. And then their second child, Nina, was born on our Stephen's birthday. Hmm. How good is God? They're all going to come. And so what we're going to do, we're going to have, uh, as near I kind of tallied it up, we're going to have two Christians six Jews, one Buddhist, and two atheists for Christmas. And uh, our daughter Linda decided to be a vegetarian somewhere along the way. Grew up in cattle country, of course. And the little kids are vegetarian. And I don't much like vegetables. And our daughter and our daughter-in-law, Kate, has celiac disease, and so she can't eat anything with gluten in it. And then, you know, Bacon and ham and some of those things are kind of an issue with the Jewish part of our family. And some of them will sleep in beds and some will sleep on the couches and some will sleep on the floor. And I would have missed it all. Were it not for you and God and Alcoholics Anonymous. So what happened to Don, really? I did a whole bunch of stuff that I thought was crazy what you told me to do. I suited up and I showed up and uh, I've been given a life beyond my wildest dreams. We had a deal in that little town in Ulysses. There wasn't any treatment center within a couple hundred miles. And if an alcoholic checked into the hospital, the two doctors there, they would uh, they would put him in a bed and they would give him some medicine of some kind to keep him from going into convulsions or her. And then we had to deal with them, and, and they would call us if we wanted to. We could come up two at a time from 10 in the evening till 6 in the morning and sit with this alcoholic, ostensibly to help the nurses, but, of course, we were pitching the guy on the bed. And after we were sober for a while, our sponsor encouraged us to put our name on the list, and I didn't, so he, my sponsor put my name on the list of people willing to go to the hospital and sit with the drunks. And one night, Bernie called, the guy that made amends to me. And uh, he said, there's a guy up there, his name's Raymond, and I want you to go four to six in the morning. And Jerry will go with him. 
And I said, Oh God, Bernie, I'm working in Oklahoma Panhandle. I gotta, I gotta leave for work. Head down there. I gotta drive an hour and a half. I gotta leave at 6 a.m. to go to work. I need my rest. And he said, maybe, is this not your name on the list? He asked my name on the list and he said, this is an AA request. And you know, we don't say no to AA requests. So have your ass down there at four o'clock in the morning. And I said, okay. So I went and I griped and I got there and this Raymond was on the bed and he was piped to two IVs and he was in terrible condition. He was not coherent. Uh, all this Jerry, he was sober six months longer than me. All we did for two hours from four to six in the morning was help Raymond chase imaginary green dogs off his bed. And these fluids are running into him. So pretty regularly he needed to go and he wouldn't use a bedpan. So we'd have to drag him into the bathroom and hold him up while he did his thing. And he, like I said, he was in terrible shape and he had terrible aim and my shoes were wet and the bottom of my pants were wet. He was a dreg of humanity and he had nothing that he could do or give to me. And I thought if I ever get done with this two hours, I won't ever do anything this stupid again as long as I live. And the nurses came at six o'clock and said, you guys can go now. And I was still smoking about three packs a day then. And that's why I can't breathe today. <laughs> and uh, I went out to get in my car and tears started running down my face. And uh, I didn't know. All I knew was, as dumb as it was, this was the best I'd ever felt in my life. I'd never felt this good before. Just spent two hours working with this guy. Such a wreck of humanity. And didn't do anything really healthy. And yet I'd never felt that good before. About a year later, after I got back from prison and Kind of went nuts and talked Susan to let me go back to that conference in the hole in the ground, South Amarillo. I sat around a tree and a guy named Bob White told us a lot of stuff. Gary mentioned him last night. And he said, you know, and we were all new, relatively new. And he said, you know, we come into AA and we do these action things that we don't want to do. And uh, we peel away these layers of self that are covering us up. And when we get enough of that peeled away by doing these things they ask us to do, then God comes in inside. And God said, he, he doesn't show up with a crescent wrench and a screwdriver to fix what's wrong with us. He brings his whole toolbox. And I think that's what happened to this alcoholic that morning in that parking lot at the hospital. I think for the first time in my life, I was aware of the presence of the creator of the universe in my being. I realized I had, I had absolutely no interest in taking a drink. And, uh, like it says, uh, I guess it's in the, in the forward to the 12 and 12, I experienced what it was like to be happily and usefully whole. And that's what you've done for me. By taking me under your arms and letting me stand on the shoulders of some of the great giants in Alcoholics Anonymous, you've given me a life that is happily and usefully whole. And I thank my God and I thank AA. And I don't know that it's like Chuck said, important which one I thank first because I think it's one and the same. So God bless and thank you.